Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. How are you? Hope you had a great weekend. I am Richie Allen. I have two very interesting guests lined up for you this afternoon. It's the 23rd of October, 2023. So it is. Uncensored. Unfiltered. You're listening to Richie Allen on the world's most popular independent news radio show. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Yeah, this hour, Louise Crefield returns to the program, the founder and director of Save Our Rights UK, a grassroots movement focused on legislative and human rights issues. It's been a while. They've got a campaign going all about surveillance at the moment. You don't want to miss this. Louise Crefield joins the programme at this hour. A bit later on, John Waters, fantastic Irish journalist and author, back on the programme. Would you believe it? But on Gorda Siakona, the Irish police invited John recently to come to the station, to his local station, to explain an article that he had written for the Irish Light paper. Would you believe it? What's going on? John Waters will be on the programme a bit later. You can check that article out, by the way, at johnwaters.substack.com. Much to get into today, and as usual, I would appreciate your participation. Reach out to me via the app, message me via the app, or via richieallen.co.uk, which is the website, comment live. You know how it works by now. Yes. Good weekend. I had a good weekend. Nice and chill. Bit of bad news, of course, United fans around the world. I'm saddened to learn about Sir Bobby Charlton. I did pop round there this morning. I run past the stadium most days. Yesterday I did, but I didn't look because the crowds were were huge. My Sunday run, you see, is a lunchtime run. My daily run is a very early in the morning run. So I popped around, uh, running running past Old Trafford, went to the Trinity statue, low best in Charlton. Lots of floral tributes there and notes and cards for the late great Sir Bobby Charlton. Great day for a radio show today. So much to get into. Before I do that, though, I want to say hello to, he won't be listening, but his mum and dad will be, to uh, Matty Calderwood, Matt Calderwood, the pride of Salford, the Salford slugger, the Salford destroyer. Matt has more nicknames than Apollo Creed, think King of Sting. Uh, He's a top mate and a great neighbour is Matt. He's a, a contender, is the lad, after some terrific performances in the ring recently for the army. Our neighbour has only got called up for the British Army's elite boxing team, which is a stunning achievement, really. Yes, for the elite boxing team, uh, for an international card against Bahrain, which will be happening soon. Amazing. Uh, So well done, Matt. We're proud of you, pal. As, of course, are your mum, Tracy, and your dad, Baz. Wonderful stuff. Good man, Matt. Keep her lit, pal. Brilliant. I'm proposing Benjamin Netanyahu for the Nobel Peace Prize. My reasoning will become apparent momentarily. Kay Burley, with her big, beautiful ginger head of hair on her, had a Palestinian academic on Sky News this morning. The woman's name is Gada Karmi. You will hear her first, then you will hear the ginger ninja. You um, might want to prepare to double over. There is um, there's not of 100% support for Hamas. No. There, there is a, a variable percentage, according to opinion polls, of, say, 30%, sometimes uh, higher than that, sometimes. But, but surely the point is not that. The point is these are 
innocent civilians. Why are they being punished? Why uh, is Israel um, threatening all the time to invade uh, Gaza, as you know? Now, you cannot, quote, eradicate Hamas unless you get in on the ground in Gaza. Now, for the last over two weeks, the Israeli army has been massing on the border, looking really fearsome, putting on a show of, of, of strength, and they haven't moved. Why not? Why not? I mean... Because it, the, I suppose some might say because they're showing restraint. What? What? <laughs> Please, you know, I mean, what, restraint, bombing civilians day and night, bombing hospitals, killing children, what restraint? Isn't the truth rather more that the Israeli army isn't up to the job? And that's what the government is afraid of, which is why they haven't allowed them in, well, as yet. But that's, that's an interesting take on it, that maybe the army isn't up to the job. Maybe, I don't know. But you get the Nobel Peace Prize mentioned earlier, don't you? Let's propose Bibi. And the recipient of the 2024 Nobel Prize for Peace is Bibi Netanyahu. How did you do it, Bibi? Show such restraint. Only murdering thousands of children in a chicken run of a Gaza Strip where they had nowhere to go. Such restraint. What would you like to spend the $1 million prize money on, Bibi? It is a million dollars, by the way, dear listener. Uh, Flamethrowers? No problems. Don't rule it out. Don't rule it out that Netanyahu might get the peace prize in the future. I mean, they gave it to Obama, didn't they? Who dropped more bombs in the Middle East than baby Bush, didn't he? We're going to bomb the peace into you. There is a warped logic there. Death is supposed to be peaceful after all, isn't it? Look, I said last week I wouldn't spend too much time talking about something that we can't do anything about. Or at least I don't think so. So I won't. I'll be true to my word. But there is a free speech element to all of this, particularly here in Blighty. You probably know this. Let's have a little bit of Sky News this afternoon. We're staying with Sky News today. And here in the UK, the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, will meet the Metropolitan Police Commissioner following protests where demonstrators chanted jihad on the streets. Uh, scenes the Transport Secretary, Mark Harper, told Sky News he found disturbing. So some protesters chanted Jihad. Have you seen the video? It's of a group called Hizbut Tahrir. Hizbut Tahrir. You've got to say it quickly, apparently. I've been practicing it all day and I just balls it up again. It's called Hizbut Tahrir. Apparently, they're a bunch of madmen, if you believe the media. They said jihad a couple of times. We'll hear it in a minute. I have a bit of audio for you. Now, a video taken from a pro Palestinian march in London on Saturday does indeed show what we just mentioned that uh, people chanted jihad, but police said. No offences have been committed, as the word has multiple meanings. Uh, as also mentioned, Home Secretary Suella Bradman will meet the Met Police Commissioner Sir Mark Rowley today. Now, she, she has met Rowley, and we'll hear from Rowley in a moment, right? So that was earlier on. So they said um, jihad, these Hizbutarir, Hizbutarir, that's how you say it. So I have the audio. Some Jewish people have said this is terrifying. Luckily enough, on the scene, a team of American police officers were present, caught the protest and heard... His Tahrir saying jihad. Durka Allah, Muhammad Jihad. Allah, Muhammad Jihad. I added in the music now for dramatic effect. Fuck, Dirk Dirk Allah. Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. 
Right, simple as that. So that's what it sounded like. Now, the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Mark Rowley, says laws for tackling extremism may need to be redrawn. And this is interesting to you and me, right? In light of pro-Palestinian protests around the Israel-Hamas war, they're calling it. Rowley said it was for politicians to decide on the line of the law and for the police later on then to enforce it. Here's Rowley. Mark Rowley. I think the law that we've designed around hate crime and terrorism over recent decades hasn't taken full account of the ability of extremist groups to steer around those laws and propagate some pretty toxic messages through social media. And those lines probably need redrawing. It's a really difficult thing to do. If you look at the Counter-Extremism Commission report, which I was involved in some nearly three years ago, that has many examples in there. One of the things we found was there are countries across the world who are, have got different frameworks which have some advantages. I mean, for example, um, uh, his Butteria, who were protesting at the weekend, and some of their protests caused deep concern. They're banned in Germany. Um, they're also banned across most of, the, um, most of the Muslim world, but they're banned in Germany. So there are frameworks which are more assertive in some respects than ours, and I think there's lessons to be learned. But that's for politicians and parliament to draw the line. I'm focused. Me and my colleagues will keep being absolutely ruthless on enforcing the letter of the law and putting thousands of extra officers out in communities to reassure people who are understandably fearful given the ghastly events across the world. Yeah, Mark Rowley there met Commissioner Durka Durka Mohammed Jihad. They said jihad in their little rally. I'm shitting myself, I don't know about you. We should have the speech laws in this country need to be redrawn in order to deal with people who say things like jihad on the streets of Britain. Mad stuff. Peter Hitchens said it best on Talk TV today. Hitchens. Many people, conservative people, now going on saying that that people should be should be uh, arrested and prosecuted for shouting out uh, anti-Israel slogans on the streets. I don't agree with this. I believe that speech should be free. If people want to incite actual violence, then that should remain illegal. But I want to know what these people think. And I think the world needs to sure. know what these people think. But if you shout- The world needs to know what these people think. And I swear to God, it is Peter Hitchens. It is not Tyrion Lannister. It's Peter Hitchens. Now, see, if, you start jihad, arrest, yeah, if you start you know, arresting them, it, it, you're, 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 first of all, you're, you're preventing them from saying what they really think so you don't know anymore. And secondly, you're breaking the basic principle of a free society that you allow people to say what they want. Not to do what they want, but to say what they want. Uh, and, and so they can be answered and we can have a proper debate. Anyone who's really in favour of freedom shouldn't get involved with this, in my view. I think they should stop calling for it. Let them say what they want. I, I, I long for more people to know what Hamas really thinks. Mm. Mm. He longs for people to know what Hamas thinks. Let them say what they want and we can make our own minds up. Do we need a new law? Well, Tim Stanley writes for the Telegraph newspaper. He was on Politics Live today. Do we need new laws, Tim, to stop people saying jihad, do we? I don't think we need any new legislation. You don't? No. We need to enforce the laws that currently exist, and uh, I cannot, seeing that clip, understand how any police officer could not have drawn the conclusion uh, that that was something they could intervene in on the basis that... One, uh, so, so, so under our current laws, you can intervene if, one, you are threatening violence directly to another individual mm. or you are doing anything which encourages terrorism. Now, I understand the semantic argument about what does jihad mean. Mm. I'm a Christian. If I talk about moral crusade, someone could interpret that simply to mean a, a religious act. Some people could interpret it to mean a militaristic one with historical consequences. And the same goes with jihad. But when Hizbut Tahrir says that, mm. 
in the context of, four, of, uh, of 1,400 Israelis being murdered, on the streets, in that location, with that rhetorical force, we know what that means. Now, and what I find so strange is that on other occasions, the police have apparently found the laws to be perfectly satisfactory in order to arrest people who have prayed silently outside abortion clinics or Christian preachers who in the street have said that gay marriage is not biblical. For some reason, there, the law is quite clear in their mind. But on this occasion, on that occasion, they suddenly decided that calling for jihad was nothing more than uh, a sort of spontaneous edition of songs of praise. A spontaneous edition of songs of praise. I'm sorry, this is nonsense. <laughs> the police have got to get their house in order. No, they don't. Because they are making themselves look like fools. No, you can't have the police discerning what the term means in the context in which it has been delivered. Can't have that. You know, you can't. You can't have one rule for one, one rule for everybody else. Kathleen Stock the gender-critical professor, was on Times Radio and agrees with us. It's not the job of the law to um, address uh, feelings of fear, anxiety, even if, you know, we can totally understand them. That's it, The law cannot get involved in, in, in responding to people's feelings in that kind of short-term way. It has to be consistent and it has to be a matter of, is there incitement to violence here? Is there a genuine public threat? And I do think it would be more compelling of Braverman... Um, her case now would be more compelling if she hadn't clearly knee-jerked very early on and said things suggesting that the pal waving the Palestinian flag should be banned, for instance, which clearly that is not in any way um, an infraction. Uh, also, generally speaking, so two things can be true. I think it's true. We need to absolutely protect the right to protest, but there are cases where um, it the protest becomes incitement to violence, and then the question is whether it was in this case. And I just find it quite irritating that the police are so quick to find nuance in someone shouting jihad 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 um when they are simultaneously stopping people silently protesting at abortion clinics or whatever it is so very good kathleen stock we couldn't argue with that amazing the police can find nuance in some lads shouting jihad jihad but um they can remove people praying silently near a termination clinic, yes. An abortion clinic, yes. Very good, Kathleen Stock. This is the Richie Allen Show, Monday's programme. John Waters will be with me a little bit later on. Louise Crefield will be on the programme shortly. A hi to Colin, who says, the laws need to change to prevent this government from making any decisions as they are totally corrupt and incompetent, says Colin. Hi to Tim, who says, the constant bombardment could be cover for war crimes already committed by the IDF. The UN cannot get boots on the ground in Gaza until there is a ceasefire, says Tim. Tim trusts the United Nations. Oh dear, Tim. Uh, David says, when Kissinger was awarded the Peace Prize in the late 1960s, Tom Lehrer announced that satire was officially dead. That's right. Absolutely. Patricia says, as Gerald Salente says, and he does, the Nobel Peace of Shit Prize. Got to love. Gerald says, Patricia. Thanks, Patricia. And Karen says, Richie, it's standard military tactics to bomb using aircraft, then artillery against the enemy before a ground offensive begins. Yes, that's true. They have taken their time, though, haven't they? Haven't they? What do you think? Are they going to go in there? Is it inevitable? I suppose we'll know in the coming days. Thanks for these messages, by the way. really appreciate them. Before we look at uh, one or two more general news items, if there is such a thing, something which made me laugh today. Uh, the, the, the police here in the UK have announced that this, this is the completely inept police. I'm not going to tell you my police stories. I have two now where the police failed utterly 
to do anything when I kind of did need them momentarily. But I won't go into that again. But they're going to target a shoplifting and treat it like organised crime. A team of specialist analysts and officers is being put together, a crack team, to gather intelligence on crime gangs behind much of the shoplifting across England and Wales. Retailers are complaining, you see, to the police uh, that the police are pretty useless when it comes to tackling the rising scourge of shoplifting. Now, I don't understand this. I do and I don't. The police are useless. Lost with all hands. The police couldn't find an elephant with diarrhoea in a blizzard, in a snow blizzard, in a snowstorm. They really couldn't. They're useless. Spend most of their time now looking to tackle hate crime, which 99.99% of the time is when somebody phones them up and says that somebody called them a name. And usually, not even in person, usually on the internet. Hello, 111, yeah, Billy, Billy Smith here from, from Weast and Solford. Yeah, guy called me a name on, oh geez, and, and off they go, right? So, um, yeah, couldn't find an elephant in the snow with diarrhea. Uh, they will, and here's what I don't understand. Here's what I do not understand. Um, John Lewis, Tesco and the co-op have signed up to to put pressure on the police to deal with shoplifting. But John Lewis, Tesco and the co-op are pretty large entities, aren't they? I cannot understand why they cannot employ more security or better security in their shops to deal with shoplifting. I just don't get it. I mean, in my local supermarket, there are cameras everywhere, hundreds of them in the store. We'll talk with Louise Crefield, maybe not about that, but about something else to do with surveillance shortly. Tell you about surveillance in Salford when when Louise is on. So shoplifting, got to treat it like organised crime. It's a scourge. It is. People are broke. Phil says, why are we all talking about petty law words whilst being distracted from the murders of thousands of innocent people by a war criminal Israel, says Phil. Thank you, Phil. Darren says, I just saw online someone proclaiming, Darren, let me, let me rephrase this for you. I was online or online or on Twitter. I was on Twitter and I saw a proclamation from somebody saying anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. I was surprised to learn the American woman who posted it is running for president, Nikki Haley, a diplomat. Laugh out loud, says Darren. Well, anti-Zionism isn't anti-Semitism, of course, and we must never allow it to be declared, ever. Okay. Hi to Anto, who says, inciting violence... Feck them all back on the boats, he says. Zero tolerance. Chris says, good evening. I'm more convinced than ever that this carnage in Gaza started with a false flag. They're going to use the situation there to move us into an even more dystopian reality and probably wipe out the Palestinians whilst they are at it. The coverage is shocking on the MSM. Where's the outrage for Israel's current war crimes? Just in the last 24 hours, uh, the Israelis have murdered nearly 500 Gazans, including a couple of hundred children. I'm just telling you because it's true. But uh, past the butter, you know. Doesn't matter, does it? John says, I get to hear the BBG live. Thank you, John. Dutch Mark says, uh, down again by the effing tape. What's going on? I have no idea. Right, that's okay. It's time to uh, take a tune. You know that the Rolling Stones have a new album out called Hackney Diamonds. You do know this. It has been, it has been, it has been awarded the most glowing of reviews by the music press. And I think it deserves those reviews. I spent a bit of time listening to it yesterday. It's brilliant. Here's a song called Mess It Up from the Stones. Would you believe it? Mick Jagger is 80. (laughs) 
and his missus is 36. From the album Hackney Diamonds, that's messed it up from the Rolling Stones on the Richie Allen Show, 23 and one half minutes past the hour of 5 o'clock this Monday. Good stuff, really good album, I recommend it, I can't recommend it highly enough. Paul says, different topic, New Zealand, former television presenter, somebody called Liz Gunn, published a video yesterday describing an incident where at one clinic in New Zealand, 30 people received a COVID jab and all 30 of them died within the same time frame. I call bullshit, Paul, and I'm surprised, Paul, that you would bring that to me and that you would give it any or lend it any credibility. I call bullshit. If you get a thousand truthers in a room, particularly a thousand truthers who have their own podcasts, 999 of them are grifters. And that's clickbait. So I don't know Liz Gunn, I know nothing about her, but I would put my last five pounds on the fact that 30 people did not die within the same time frame, all 30 having had a jab at the same clinic in the same day. No, I don't buy it at all. Got to be discerning. You got to apply the same stringent rules to the information you consume in the independent or from the independent media as you do with the BBC because just like the BBC, ITV, ITN, Channel 4, Sky News and GB News, most of Trucerland is full of shit too. It really is. As has been exposed on this programme too many times over the years. Remember, remember, remember that crowd, that shower of idiots on the south coast who told you that babies were being eaten at a school in Hampstead Heath, remember? That's what the truth or industrial complex is. is. Be discerning 25 minutes past the air. You must be discerning, I tell you, about everything you hear. Disbelieve all of it at the outset. See what... um, you know, put a magnifying glass on it, see what makes sense to you. But 30 people, same clinic? No. No. Hi to Lucy. Thank you, Lucy. Please download the app, please. And uh, do leave a review for the Richie Allen Show app. Hi to Steve T. Hi to Steve. That's a lovely cartoon, by the way. You can see that cartoon on commentliverichieallen.co.uk. As, as it's a Monday, this combobulation... There's something I wanted to say to you, and it's gone out of my mind now. But uh, it'll come back to me if it's um, if it's worth talking about. It'll come back to me, Louise Crefield, shortly. So you yeah, a lot of chatter online, obviously about Israel, Palestine, but also about hate crime laws and how they may need redrawing. Uh, th- th- there are a number of well-known Jewish people who've gone to Twitter, who've taken to Twitter, taken to Facebook and Instagram in recent days to say that life for British Jews is now untenable and British Jews may find themselves having to leave the country because of all the hate speech. Um, nowhere, of course, is there any acknowledgement that the Palestine, the, the marches for Palestine were attended by hundreds, if not thousands of Jewish people. I know this. It's always the same. I have attended over the years in Manchester and elsewhere uh, rallies, just out of curiosity, really, to see what type of man, what type of woman would turn up to such an event. And you will find lots of Jewish people because the majority of Jewish people do not support the Israeli government's policies, you know, historically, presently, as they do not support the, its policy towards the people of Palestine and Gaza. But those views don't matter. And I was thinking to myself the other day, but I couldn't put it into words because sometimes words fail me, strangely enough. You know, isn't it a type of anti-Semitism when Zionist Jews 
And Zionist Jews are real. You know, there are Jews in this country who completely and wholeheartedly support the idea of a permanent homeland for, 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 for the Jews and that Israel should be that homeland no matter what, no matter how many eggs you have to break to, you know, omelettes you have to make or whatever it is, you know, in order to make that happen. Those are real people. But I don't believe they're in the majority. But isn't it some sort of anti-Semitism against the majority of British Jews who do not support it? They are marginalised. They are basically silenced. They are not spoken of. They never get a mention in the news. Anyway, let's get Louise Crefield on the programme. Um, now, um, anything you'd like to say to Louise through me, do so. Uh, boy, uh, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got to do something now. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. It's Monday, isn't it? Forgot to do something before coming on here. I had to make a little adjustment. My my engineer had been on to me. He said, Rich, you've got to make a little adjustment. And uh, I'm just going to make it now. And we should be okay then. Happy days. And we're good to go. I had to make a little adjustment, you see, before coming on air. And I didn't. I just did it now. You'll never know. 28 and a half minutes past the hour. Look, surveillance, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, let's talk about surveillance and let's talk about other things. In fact, let's talk about the last three years with uh, my guest this hour. She was on the programme a couple of years ago uh, to talk about Save Our Rights UK, an organisation she founded. She's the director of it. It's a grassroots movement and it's primarily focused on legislative and human rights issues. Um, she was fined thousands of pounds uh, for breaking lockdown rules. Let's talk about that and more and surveillance with uh, the founder and director of Save Our Rights UK, uh, the one and only Louise Crefield. Hi Louise, welcome back. How are you? Oh, we can hear you now. Momentarily, I, I couldn't hear you, but you're, you're on. How are you doing, Louise? Good to have you back. I'm good, thank you. Yeah, uh, thank you for having me. Welcome back. It's been a while. So tell us, not that I need to ask this, but if I don't ask it, I'll be shot. Did you pay the £20,000 to the government? Um, I haven't um, I haven't voluntarily paid anything, but they do take money um, directly out of money that I get in, unfortunately, um, which I can't prevent this, this is outrageous because mm -hmm. because i know that you're somebody of of spirit you're somebody who's brave you're courageous so there's no way you're going to voluntarily pay them twenty thousand pounds so the judgment that was and i didn't want to start off on the negative now but this is interesting because it's important because it's about our rights so the judgment against you for exercising your human right to go outside and to congregate with other human beings they're taking weekly or monthly money from your bank account is that right yeah so um yeah i get some um benefits in and they take it straight out of my benefits before they give it to me um and yeah every month and have done for a while now there's a word that ends in d and begins with a b I mean, bastards. I mean, this is terrible, right? And I suppose mm. to appeal something like this is costly. And I suppose we'll only end up with the original verdict being upheld. Is that right? Yeah. So we decided not to. Um, we did actually appeal the amount. <clears throat> so the um, because there is legislation that says that fines aren't meant to be more than what a person can reasonably pay back within a year. Now, when they find me £20,000, um, they accepted an offer of £5 a week, which would have taken 79 and a half years to pay back. 
So I didn't actually have much chance of ever paying it back. So we appealed the amount and they said that um, because in exceptional circumstances, it can take more than a year. And because I flagrantly broke the law and there was hundreds of thousands of people there and because I knew what I was doing wasn't following their rules, that they did want to find me more than I could pay back in a year. Um, but they so they reduced it to, I think, 1,600 and something, which at five pounds a week would take six years. And then that's on top of my other fine, which was about a thousand pounds as well. So, yeah, between the two, it's about two and a half thousand in total, which isn't as bad as the 20,000. But I know, but but still, it was it was for protesting tyranny because lockdown was tyranny, you know, telling Mm -hmm. people that we get control over your exercise time and the, the, the length of time you exercise you know, we get control over who you can invite into your invite into your home. That's just bloody tyranny. So, regardless of how much the fine was, Louise, to me it's outlandish because they've mm-hmm. kind of gotten away with it. You know, but anyway, not to be too negative. Before we talk about surveillance, because I don't know if you know this, but lately, maybe somebody has shared this information with you. We've got Louise Crefield from Save Our Rights UK. And by the way, on the podcast, all the links to Louise will be on the podcast notes a bit later on. But you know, there are three, maybe four drones now hovering mm. over Salford all the time, Louise. Mm. And they seem to be incredibly sophisticated drones. And uh, I, I've, tried to, I've tried to get into this to, to kind of find out why drones, and I've not gotten any answers, but locals tell me that this is about traffic. But we'll come back to that in a minute. This is, mm. this is a Monday, so you'll forgive me for hopping around from subject to subject. <laughs> but, but when you look back, right, on the last three years, how do you feel about it now, everything that went on? you know, Because I, I look back at it, and when I look back, to me, I feel very uneasy when I look back at it, the things that went on, the way people mm. behaved, the way so many people acquiesced to it. You got stuck in to try and do something about it and to stand up to it. So when you look back upon it now, three years later, three and a half years later, what are your thoughts? How do you evaluate that time period? Oh, gosh, it was wild, wasn't it? Um, like, because because of my position, I've got various, like, headlines and things and articles and that. And there was an article where, it, like, the local paper reported on the fact that I was planning a birthday party for my daughter because that was against the law and I'm like what madness is it that a woman planning a daughter's birthday party is headline news like (laughs) why is that headline news that shouldn't be nobody should care you know whether I'm planning my daughter a birthday party or not you know in fact I'm planning a one right now because it's nearly her birthday um and no it's not in the papers because that's how it should be. So it is, it's, it was a crazy time. And, um, yeah, I, but in some ways I'm so grateful because it activated a lot of people, a lot of people who, um, knew what was going on in terms of, because the government have always had a plan to increase surveillance, increase, um, infringements upon our rights. But, and lots of people knew about that, but we didn't know who the other ones were and how to gather together. Whereas what happened in 2020 brought us all out of the woodwork. I'm like, ah, oh, we all are. We are all. <laughs> and we got to identify each other, which was great 
in yeah. some ways. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm grateful for that. But yeah, it was it is. I look back and very unsettling, I would imagine, to see yourself mm. making national news headlines. That that can't be easy when it's something you've never experienced before. That would mm-hmm. be pretty terrifying for most people, I would guess. Yeah, yeah, it's it has. It's been you know I. I've woken up at times and there's been like a media storm. Like there was one time um, where, yeah, just one Wednesday, it was every, every paper was talking about save our rights. And it was because I'd interviewed an MP and he'd said some things that people were outraged about. And yeah, it was, it was crazy. And it is, it was, I was like, what, what happened to my life? But then at the same time, I couldn't not do anything. And I'm grateful that I was able to, be of service and we managed to be so active so it was worth it but yeah it my life is will never be the same again for sure but no doubt about it i remember the interview with desmond swain and other interviews mm-hmm. and the reaction to to those interviews after that can't have been easy louise crefield from save our rights uk is on the line you're running a campaign about sur- surveillance and um, one of your supporters sent a link to a video which i watched which is really interesting tell us about this campaign to raise awareness about the levels of surveillance. And then we might have a, a kind of a chat about what's going on with drones, because this is mm-hmm. this has scared me, these drones appearing over Salford. So tell us about the Save Our Rights campaign then. Yeah, so this is a campaign to do with the data protection bill that's currently going through Parliament. And as we know, they like to pass these bills that are... Um, yeah, just encroaching again further on our rights. And this one is particularly bad. And but the good thing about the good thing is that this one is at report stage. So there is still time to make some noise. It's not it's not done and dusted. It's not finalized. There's still time to make amendments. But there's a number of different um, points that are really problematic in it, uh, including so they want to um do you want me to run through the points <laughs> do this is why yeah because this is hugely important because i haven't covered this yet really in any detail at all so tell us about these points then da- data protection yeah. bill it's not at the reading stage yet it's in development right so it's it's done its first reading it's done oh, its second reading wow um but it's at report stage so this is where the house goes through it they can make add amendments and things like that so it's a good time to write to your mp which is what we're encouraging everyone to do because again they try and do this without people noticing and then they go well you didn't say no and so they take silence as consent and so it's really even if you think they won't listen even if you think they don't care even if you get some nonsense answer back they will take your silence as consent. So that's your alternative is to stay silent and then assume you consent. So we have to say no at each point, even if it's tedious, even if it's boring, and even if we feel like it's not making a difference. If enough of us do, it actually does make a difference. So it is important to do. Um, so the the first point is it's going to increase um, the police's power to access data. So it's going to let them access more and more of our data, um, take our phones, um, take data off there. Um, If they feel like it might help them in any which way, they can justify. And so it's going to make that much easier. And the police already really like doing that. um, And this is just going to increase that. So 
that's problematic because you don't have to be guilty. You don't even have to be found guilty. They can, like, even just at the point of apprehending you or even a desire to apprehend you, they can take your data. So that's the first point. Louise, on, on that point, on that the, point, before we move on to the next one, because that's that's a really important one, right? Mm-hmm. So, so a police officer might claim to have sufficient reason or be sufficiently suspicious about a member of the public, um, and once that is satisfied, he or she can then apprehend or ask to search the the, the person that that they have found suspicious, and at that point they can take their phone or their tablet and they can download it basically is that what they're looking to do Mm -hmm. jesus yeah exactly lovely yeah um and and they have ways of getting through encrypted data they have ways of getting through deleted things so yeah it's very invasive um and i don't know about you but i've got lots of things you know private conversations with friends and family that you know maybe it's not even private about me but you know maybe my friends have told me something in confidence about, I don't know, their marriage. Yeah. This sort of stuff just should not be in the hands of the police. And when they do a full download of your phone, they get the whole lot. Um, and yeah, it's just a huge invasion of not only your privacy, but everyone you're connected with. Well, so let's move on to the next um, point on this. This is a, this is fascinating. Yeah. So the next point is they um, have put a clause in there that say that UK GDPR... So where we've left the EU, we no longer have EU GDPR laws or we're we're kind of transitioning out. And this is how they're transitioning out. And they're saying that they want UK GDPR laws to be made via statutory instrument. Now, what this means is um, statutory instruments are secondary legislation so statutory instruments are made by the secretary of state that's relevant to the law they write it and it's it's basically just put in the house common and and unless anybody objects to it it just becomes law and um in the history of statutory instruments i don't think one has been rejected for many decades but it doesn't get full consideration in the House. Nobody actually votes it in. There's no debates on it. There's no analysis of it. There's no amendments to it. It just goes through as is. So that basically just gives the Secretary of State to make whatever laws they want about UK GDPR as and when he feels like it. With no, and we've got no recourse. We've got we can't lobby our MP to do anything about it because. It's just a statutory instrument. It's horrible, so, this. It's horrible, this. So when, when when primary legislation becomes law, when it's given royal assent, thereafter, the Secretary of State of the day can amend that law at any time he or she wants without really having any vote uh, of the 650 MPs in, in Parliament. And we first heard about this, didn't we, during um, the early days of COVID, didn't we? Mm-hmm. When when they were passing laws to deal with um with with COVID, they it was the first time I'd ever heard the term statutory instruments. To be honest with you, Louise, and yeah. when I learned what what it actually meant, it was horrifying, really. So primary legislation comes in, and people think, right, that's the legislation, happy days. But it isn't really because statutory instruments means, as I said, the government can do whatever it wants thereafter to amend that law, to change it, to make it more stringent. 
or more draconian and um and, and can just do it wow mm-hmm. around data exactly. protection around data protection yeah yeah so you know and gdpr as we're seeing you know such a rise in technology and such a rise in data you know data is such a valuable asset and you know and we're seeing ai there's so much that needs to be well managed and even if we had a secretary of state who we believed had good intentions um (laughs) yeah if we had one you know it doesn't mean that they should be making laws on such an important matter without full consideration of the house because maybe they'd like even if they had good intentions they could make a mistake or not think things things through properly or not recognize a potential impact so it's just so for such important legislation it just shouldn't be done via statutory instrument um at all and yes you're right with the we saw just how extensively statutory instruments can be used during covid and they use them to an alarming effect and it, that isn't really following proper parliamentary protocol there isn't there is no democracy in no, that no it's a because, dicta- it's a dictatorship isn't it it's making laws right. on the hoof so it's bringing in legislation which people might understand they might understand it okay these are the rules this is a new law fair enough but what people don't understand, and they, they never make this apparent, they never make this clear on the legacy media, is that that law that you think has been passed, that's been given royal assent, that's really nothing. That's just basically, that's notes, effectively. And what they're going to do is they're now going to make the law and shape it as they want and as they see fit without any scrutiny from Parliament. That's terrifying, really. I mean, it really is. And I suppose as as time goes on, whatever legislation is passed through the House of Parliament, the House of Lords, and is given royal assent, all of these laws to come in the future, I guess, are going to have the secondary legislation, the statutory instruments attached to them, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, they've always been, as you say, they've always been able to make statutory instruments, but for them to actually specify that they are only going to make UK GDPR laws through statutory instrument from now on is just outrageous, you know. Yes, And sometimes there are plenty of statutory instruments that are completely inconsequential. You know, sometimes they change the word of some, like the spelling, or sometimes they just realise that they haven't made a point very clearly and they clarify it. Those statutory instruments are useful, helpful, absolutely fine. But ones that are actually fundamentally creating new legislation should never be done by statutory instrument. You know, they're meant to be, um, for clarifying, and so for them to say that they're only going to use statutory instruments for GDPR from going forward is outrageous. And uh, apart from you talking about it, apart from us talking about it here, th- this is not known. I mean, this won't be known to the British public. It, it, like, it just will not be known. I mean, even the legislation itself, you know, the fact that there's a data protection bill going through the Commons. I consume the, I, I watch the broadcast media day in, day out. I listen to the national and commercial radio stations. There hasn't been a mention of any of this. And yet no. it's at a second reading and it's at the reporting stage. No. Um, so I've, I saw one article in the Financial Times um, and that's it when I search for it. But there, there are still three other um, problematic points with this bill. I haven't even finished yet. <laughs> and as far as I'm aware, even in kind of our side, I am the only one that's kind of 
uh, noted these problematic points, but that's because they are very well hidden. They're not easy to access. Even if you read the bill in full, it's hard to pull out and necessarily know what you're looking at and to understand because they don't make it accessible at all. They don't want people to recognise it, but it's published there on the government websites. Technically, they're not hiding it, but whether you or Joe Bloggs will know what they're looking at um, is very unlikely because of the way they do it. Yeah, well, it shouldn't matter um, because it's up to the media to pull this stuff apart, but the media doesn't. It shouldn't matter whether Mm -hmm. ordinary men and women read it or not. But that's a moot point. So move on then to the other concerning um, aspects to this. Yeah. So the next one is, as um, I said, so the... It's also so back on the statutory instruments. It actually says in there that um, the Secretary of State can alter, repeal, or revoke provisions made by primary legislation using a statutory instrument. So again, it's a statutory instrument issue. It's giving the um, Secretary of State permission to alter pre other primary le- legislation, not just this one, using um, statutory instruments. So. That's problematic for the same reasons as we talked about. But then there's two other points, which is they are um, abolishing the Office of Commissioner for Retention of Use of Biometric Material. And they're getting rid of all CCTV regulations and the commissioner about that as well. So. These are hugely alarming. So they're going to what they're saying they're going to do is they're going to incorporate both of these things into some um, other commissioner role. And the problem is the commissioners have both said so the current biometric um, commissioner and the current CCTV regulation commissioner have both said that's not going to work. It's not going to work and it's going to weaken protectives. protections and there's been academic papers on this talking about how this isn't going to work and they're actually abolishing all cctv regulations now we're at a time when biometric material is on a huge increase with when you look at facial recognition cameras and as we talked about like with drones and you know and like supermarkets are using facial recognition um technology and then in terms of cctv everybody's got like ring doorbells dash cams the uh, and again those can take biometric data you know now is the time we need actually need more regulations to protect the likes of me and you and our data and our biometric data than ever and we need specialist oversight not just putting it in under a general um commissioner who won't know what he's looking at, won't know how to manage it, won't be prioritising it. And so for them to be abolishing those very quietly and, you know, we'll have no specific CCTV regulations. What's the Um, purpose, Louise? Why do you think they're doing it? Well, because then it gives them much more free reign over what they do and don't do with the likes of drones. Because we've got drones here in Brighton. Um... So, yeah, it's it, it's just paving the way for and it, even if it isn't the government that deploys the drones, that uses the CTV, it allows others to. 
So, yeah, it's really paving the way for a surveillance state, essentially. How long have you had drones over Brighton? Those have been a recent thing, and they come out on a Friday and Saturday night to protect the students from themselves, apparently. But, yeah, nobody's very happy about them. Horrendous. They appeared over the skies of Salford about four or five weeks ago. And mm-hmm. they, I can see them. I'm out at dawn with my dogs. So I'm out 4.45, 5 o'clock, maybe 5.15 some mornings. And I see three or four of them. They're in the sky all the time. I photograph these. And they're mm-hmm. big. They're big old things, these. They're not helicopters. They're not planes. There's, there's been an admission that they're, they're, they're using them. Um, but they're just there. It's an it's an mm. astonishing thing, really. It's 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 Blade Runner stuff, really, for me. That they're just that they would have the goal to put these things in the sky, and not have to in any way justify that to the local people. So yeah, mm. yeah, I've noticed it four or five weeks now, constantly. They'll be flying from the time it gets dark here until until um on I suppose until rush hour traffic has has um dissipated tomorrow. And I've never read anything about any of this. I've never seen anything in a newspaper or anywhere about the police using drones and about, you know, any sort of permission being granted to the police forces to use drones in this manner. Strange. Mm. Yeah, and that was the other thing that came up in the reports about um, about this move. In, so there was an academic paper written as, um, you know, a response to the bill. And they said, you know, the police commissioner is saying they want to use facial technician technology, facial recognition technology all throughout police policing. So they want um, facial recognition technology on their body worn cameras and the little things that they carry around with them. And yet at the same time, they want to remove anybody having oversight over that biometric data. So it's it's just it's completely outrageous again. And like you say, Nobody's actually asked the public if they want no. the police to use facial recognition technology. And obviously we heard um, a Tory MP at a um, fringe event at the Tory conference saying that they might give the police access to all our passport photos to utilise for racial te- facial recognition to- technology. That's a nice... Um... I mean, that's pretty nice of the Tory MP, isn't it, to to, to basically mm-hmm. sign over the rights of every man, woman and child in the country to, to, to tell the police, well, if you, if you want this information, we'll, we'll give it to you. Um, what can people do before we run out of time? SaveOurRights.uk is the website. SaveOurRights is on mm-hmm. Twitter. It's at SaveOurRightsUK. I mean, you mentioned earlier on getting in touch with MPs, telling them you're aware of it and that you don't like it and that they should say something about it. What else can people do? Because it is deadly serious, this. Yeah, well, on our website, they, there is um, a form that you can use to email your MP. Which So we've made it really simple. And, you know, and what I know about politics is and MPs don't really, they, what they care about is numbers. So if they get a lot of people saying something, then they're more likely to listen. So it doesn't matter necessarily whether you write it yourself or you use a template email, it's the volume that's important. So do feel free to use our template. And we can also, if you opt into the campaign, we can also write back to them again on your behalf if there is an upcoming debate or something and we want to tell them what to do (laughs) at the debate. But otherwise, you know, um, share, you know, this episode with me and you, share um, the live that I did, 
you know, just raise awareness because not enough people are talking about this bill uh, at all. Do you so, fear? Do you fear with everything going on in people's lives that, you know, getting corralling people to care about this stuff is becoming more and more difficult, um, mm-hmm. particularly in a you know in cities where people are struggling financially. Um, shoplifting is on the rise because people can't afford to buy basic food items. So getting them to think about this stuff, it's becoming more difficult, I think. Do you find that? Yeah, absolutely. But that's, as far as I'm concerned, by design. We are, the the people of this nation are overstretched and under-resourced on purpose because then they don't have the resources to give to caring about this. They don't have time to give to campaigning. And, you know, where we see families where both parents have to work to be able to afford to house themselves, we, it's become, it's, it's, and it's done on purpose, you know, because otherwise, if we had, you know, if we had what we needed, if we had spare time, if we weren't overworked, we would utilize that extra energy to, wait a minute, what are you lot doing? And we challenge them. So, yeah, it is difficult. It is. And which is why we try and make it really easy, because it does. It takes 30 seconds on the website to send the email because we know how overstretched people are. So we try and make it as easy as possible. Pretty good. Saveourrights.uk is the website. I'll put it on the podcast notes as well as the Twitter account at SaveOurRightsUK. Good work, Louise. Really well done. Thank you. And thanks for doing it. I'll let you get back to your dinner. All right. Thanks so much. Alex. Thank you. Bye, Bye for now. Bye now. Uh, Louise Crefield there, the founder and director of Save Our Rights UK. Yeah, I, I was looking into this today, funnily enough, um, ahead of Louise coming uh, back on the programme. Um, nothing is working today. I'm trying to get out. Hang on a second. Yeah, I was looking into this and uh, it's actually described it. The, the, the law, if passed, it's at the reporting stage now, would effectively allow the police to, to, to take... To, to take the phone, the computer, the laptop, the, the, the tablet of anybody suspected of anything and, and download every single bit of data on that device. It's uh, two and a half minutes to the top of the hour. Winter's on its way and so are colds, flu and other respiratory illness. <laughs> a robust immune system and vitamin D3 are your weapons in the fight to keep healthy when things get chilly. Immunex 365 vitamin capsules from NutraHealth 365 combine effective levels of vitamins D3, C and K2, as well as zinc and quercetin to give your body that winter boost at just two capsules a day. Plus, for your peace of mind, all NutraHealth 365 orders come with free two-day track delivery. Visit NutraHealth365.com now and get winter ready. Yeah, NutraHealth365.com sponsoring the Richie Allen Show all this week. Terrific company. Get in touch. NutraHealth365.com Keely says, I heard from a friend that the Met Police are in the process of installing drones all over central London. This will become common knowledge by the middle of next year. Most of them are already in situ and are currently being tested. Yeah, I, I, I was genuine when I said I was pretty startled to see them over the skies of, of this city in recent weeks. Four of them that I can count. Um, yeah, covering pretty much, I'd say, the whole of Salford. Hovering there. Amazing, really, when you think of it, you know. It's, it's the thing we talked about for so many years on programmes like this with people, like Jim Mars, the late great Jim Mars, God love him, and others, that this was on the way this level of surveillance. Yeah, it's here. It's here now, all right. Anne says, luckily I don't have a passport, thank goodness. Mine is expired. 
Mine expired a year and a half ago, and I haven't done anything about it. My my Irish passport, I haven't yet uh, renewed it, or, or or even taken any step to uh, renewing it. Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. Um, hi to Philomena, who says Richie Matt Hancock said when he was asked about his meeting with his girlfriend that meeting up was a guideline, not a law. Absolutely shocking, says Philomena. That's right, he did, didn't he? When he rather suspiciously stood near a camera in a room, just under a camera, with his uh, girlfriend at the time. Hi to Kevin, who says, Richie, remember the Cork lady who was sent to prison for not wearing a mask in a supermarket? I can't find anything on how she is doing now. Have you got any info on this amazing lady? Says Kevin. Kevin, I don't, and to my shame, I can't remember that lady's name. There's a lady in Cork who was arrested and was uh, sent to jail for wearing, for not, for, for repeatedly not wearing a mask in a supermarket. Maybe my pal Jean Ann Crowley will remember her name, but I don't. Yeah. Interesting. Christopher says, Richie, it could be argued that if these people all received jabs from the same batch, it could happen. Uh, that's relating to a listener who said earlier on that some Australian truther is claiming that 30 people who received jabs at a certain clinic, or a jab, uh, that the 30 of them died within a very short time. I, I just call bullshit. I, I, I do. It doesn't mean that I'm right, of course. I'm entitled to my opinion, no? I, I just don't believe it. Evening, Richie, says G-Man. Still nobody is calling for peace on both sides. No, nobody is calling for peace. Good evening to Tina, who says, Richie, it is the first time for me to listen to, listen to this show. The very first time, says Tina. You're a refreshing change from the mainstream, and I will definitely tune in again. All the best, Tina. Tina, hang on. Not going anywhere till just before 7 o'clock. Thank you. Gillian says, Richie. Thank you, Gillian. Appreciate that. Uh, hi to Patricia, who says, I, I absolutely agree with the statement that the attack on Israel was a false flag. Israel is the most secure country in the world. Anyone who believes it was a surprise attack as long as they're not being paying attention or is really dumb, in my opinion, says Patricia. thing I find very strange about it is that it took six hours. I mean, six hours is a long time. I think we mentioned this, didn't we? On the Monday after the Saturday. We talked about this. Six hours. Come on. You know. Six hours is, is three quarters of a working day. Isn't it? I mean that's mental. I can't get my head around that. I mean I can't make any declaration. Like I can't say well it's obviously a false flag. But I would have sympathy with Patricia's point of view. You'd have to ask. How could they paraglide in? Paraglide in. Is that strange as well isn't it? How could they practice that anywhere without the knowledge of the Israeli defence force? How could they do that? Now, it might very well be they did do it. I mean, Kevin Barrett, no, Kevin Barrett, who was on this programme last week, academic, presenter, author, right? And absolutely no fan of Israel whatsoever. Kevin Barrett remains convinced that Hamas did pull it off. That was it was an act of ingenuity, a military act of, of marvel, a marvellous act of, of ingenuity by Hamas, according to Kevin Barrett. He believes it. I don't know. I might, if I had to put a fiver on it, that's my, my old saying, my old chestnut, if you had to put a fiver on it. I don't know. D did they know? Were they told by the Egyptian intelligence agencies? Were they told by the United States that Hamas was planning something? Did they take that knowledge and then decide... You know what? We can make great mileage out of an attack in southern Israel by Hamas militants or Hamas terrorists. 
whatever your fancy is. We can make great capital with it. We can do lots with that. Like once and for all, we can go into Gaza, just destroy every building, destroy every road, every bit of infrastructure in the region. Maybe. But the thing is, we will never know, probably, for sure. You know, you can suspect and suspect and suspect, but we might never know. And this is Prince on The Richie Allen Show. Yeah, music from Prince. Kiss on The Richie Allen Show. It was Margaret Buttimer. Well done to Jean Ann Crowley. Margaret Buttimer was the grandmother who spent Christmas of 2021 in prison because she repeatedly refused to wear a mask in stores or in restaurants in Cork, saying that, I just think it doesn't work for a virus. To put her in jail. That's a thing, isn't it? That's something if they said that to you years ago. Imagine 15, 20 years ago, if somebody said to you, a grandmother, a diminutive, friendly, softly spoken granny, would be sent to prison for refusing to compromise their own health by wearing a mask which wouldn't or couldn't or didn't stop anything from spreading anywhere, could be sent to jail. I remember talking about this at the time and there was a sense, it was very surreal to be talking about it at the time. I couldn't get my head around it. We're actually talking about a grandmother going to prison because she enters a shopping centre to do her daily or weekly shop and refuses to wear a ridiculous mask on her face. And eventually, yeah, 66 at the time she was. She'd be 68, I suppose, now. Finton's Road, Bandon in County Cork. In Bandon in County Cork. Do you remember that, talking about that? Incredulity, remember? It couldn't really be happening. That they would put her in jail. But they did put her in jail. And I don't think there's any going back, really, from that, you know? I think they got away with this stuff. It's like we spoke earlier on. I mean... Louise Crefield, okay, it was reduced significantly, the £20,000 fine, but it doesn't really matter that it was reduced significantly. The fact is they've gotten away with fining somebody for doing what is, is a human right, which is going outside in the fresh air, congregating with your fellow human beings, meeting them, spending time with them. And that, they got away with it, didn't they? You'll tell me they didn't. I know you, you'll be on to me straight away saying they didn't get away with it. They did get away with it. This is the thing, they got away with it. The people who who dreamt it up, not so much the people who dreamt it up, but the foot soldiers of those who dreamt it up have gotten away with it. You know, Matt Hancock, Chris Whitty, Jonathan Van Tam, the other idiot, um, the scientific guy, Patrick Valance. Not the architects, no, no, not the architects, but the foot soldiers the ones who delivered it, they got away with it. They're free and easy and probably very wealthy. They got away with it. I'm not advocating anything. Of course I'm not. They got away with it. And when agencies, when governments get away with things, they invariably do those things again at some point in the future, don't they? And for for, for my money, whatever it's worth, it'll be... um climate in the future it'll be climate lockdowns but not in the sense of you've got to stay indoors now and you can only go outside once a day for a 20 minute exercise break no it'll be 
you won't be able to travel outside your city. You'll be restricted as to how often you can use your car. You'll be given a carbon allowance. And they will get away with that when the time comes because not you, not me, it's not our fault. We did our bit. But because pretty much everybody else allowed them away with it. We didn't. You didn't. I didn't. I went where I wanted to go. I said what I wanted to say. I didn't back down to it. Pretty much everybody else did. It's ten minutes past the hour. Let's get John Waters back on the Richie Allen Show. Fantastic writer, journalist, broadcaster, great friend of ours. Um, You'll find him these days on johnwaters.substack.com but you'll also read him in the Irish Light which I believe has been a sensational success in Ireland in terms of its circulation has just been off the charts. Congratulations to everybody involved in distributing the newspaper um, all across our island because that's a great thing. I remember when it took off here in the UK. I have great admiration for that. Let's welcome back our friend John Waters. John, welcome back. How are you? Hello, Richie. How are you doing? I'm great. I was shocked because I, I always read your Substack. I was shocked to read late last week. Not shocked, really, but dismayed, really, that here mm-hmm. we are again. I've just been talking about Margaret Buttimer, who went to jail because she wouldn't wear a mask in a supermarket. And yes. I, I've, I've just been whinging about the fact that they, whatever they is, got away with that. They got away with doing that, and they might do it again in the future. And there's you, a journalist of great renown. I'm not kissing your arse. You're a great writer. You know you are yourself. And you, you write for the Irish Light now and for johnwaters.substack.com. And we live in a world where a member of Angarda Síochána can phone you up or send you an email or reach out to you and invite you to come and discuss an article that you wrote in a free newspaper as yeah. a journalist. We're, yeah. we're fucked, aren't we, John? I mean, we must We're be. fucked, yeah. We're completely fucked, Richie. And and this has this is, this been fucked that we're in situation is the result of people's ref- failure to respond to this thuggery as it escalated in the last few years uh, because now it's completely out of control. I, just to kind of be clear, like the, my article, which is, for avail- is available for anybody to read the article that he's complained of is for is is on on my website on my Substack now, under the heading in the crosshairs of the combine, and it's an article about mass migration, and it's a, it's particularly an article about the 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 lying uh, abuse of the Irish politicians of the history of Irish people's necessity to leave their own country and seek a life elsewhere in the past due to famine, and absolute and you know genocide effectively and uh, it's also there's also a section in it about the the new uh, illegal bedrock arising from un legislation and rooted in united states of america uh, civil rights legislation which in effect creates of each new migrant in the world a roving or a state of jurisdiction which enables that person to acquire exalted rights over the natives of any country they end up in. So it's a description of those things. There isn't, they say, this moronic guard or a sinister guard, a police officer, says that it's got racism, incitement to hatred, and it's got anti-Semitism. There are no mention of Jews in it whatsoever. Let's get that out there. Nothing, not a hint, right? Uh, as regards the incitement to hatred, this publication has been on the streets for over six months and nobody has complained. Nobody has been incited to do anything. 
This doesn't seem to matter. Moreover, as regards the racist thing, yes, there is mention, there's, there's talk of racism in it, but it's an accusation of racism against the Irish government for the manner in which it treats people from outside in a different way to the way it treats its own citizens. The way it basically uh, infantilizes people from outside as though they were in somehow so so tender, so so vulnerable, so so lacking in the capacity to speak and defend their position or argue like we, you and me, that they must be given uh, different kind of protections in law from me and you. Like, you know, like, Richie, you come from Ireland, you know, you know the way, and indeed every country, let's be honest, it's not just Ireland, but in Ireland, right? People argue the toss all the time. They insult each other in fun. They abuse each other in fun. They have a laugh. That's called culture, right? But when somebody's got a particular tone of skin, you have to say to yourself, oh, no, I can't say that now because this person is so vulnerable. This is the ideology we're dealing with. So vulnerable and sensitive that they wouldn't be able to understand a joke. They wouldn't be able to answer me back. They don't have the intelligence to answer me back. That's the implication of all this stuff. Now, let me be clear. There's nothing like this in the article whatsoever. I'm just making the point that what, where we're moving where we'll be moved to this is essentially that you won't be able to mention any person of colour in any context other than praising them to the skies. And if, you, if you're a bit reticent in your praise, that might be a problem. If you're not, you know, saying they're the greatest person ever to walk the earth, something like that, then you're racist. But certainly if you make a joke about them, about the colour of their hair or the, the nature of their hair, you can say it about Irish people and call them ginger. Not a problem. That's not racist. Nor should it be. But if you have a joke about, you know, somebody, the colour of somebody's face or where they come from or anything to do with their uh, ethnicity or colour, then that makes you a criminal. In this context. And in this context, you would be liable to, to prison sentences of anything from two, six months to six years on conviction and indictment. That's where we've come to now, where we have elevated these kinds of people. I call it ideological policing, but it's a totally inadequate name for it. Like it's scummery of the highest order. And, and but people have brought us here. The ordinary people of Ireland have brought us here by their refusal to listen to what we were saying about what was happening the last 20 years. That's that's the problem. This is a moment actually quite analogous to the one. We've talked about it a few times, Richie. The, 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 the legal action myself and Gemma Doherty took, and she's of course featured in this, uh, this uh, thing as well. She's been accused as well. Uh, th but the, the case we took, a large part of what we were doing and going to the courts was to kind of, as it were, demonstrate or prove or in a sense dramatise what we anticipated would be the complete corruption of the system. And we came out with 100% success on that score because it was utterly corrupt, apart from one judge who found in our favour, very eminent judge. And here we have a similar situation that we're, you know, if this is this, this succeeds, then uh, if we if we go down in this case, if this case goes ahead and we go down, it means essentially that people cannot open their mouths in future about any aspect of of uh, migration, asylum seeking, no matter how abusive somebody may have been in the system. For example, today in Ireland, very interesting, a man who beheaded an Islam a Muslim man in Sligo, who beheaded 
two gay men uh, two years ago, year, last year actually, yeah. uh, and castrated them. Uh, has been sentenced to, to, to two life sentences plus 20 years, whatever that means. It probably means about six months and then you're out. Uh, but in the future, we won't be able to do anything to protect our people from such dangers. Well, you won't be even allowed. This is the thing that scares me. You can't raise the question and get a debate going to ask, are we importing this into our society? You know, what do we know about the men um, coming into our country from, 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 from various other countries around the world? What do we know about them, their, their, their culture, their belief systems? Um, and do we take some responsibility for what happened to those gay men? Even to raise that point or to even begin to try and kind of disseminate that is to be labelled as dangerous because you're talking yes. about a protected group and therefore you can't and you better shut up about it. And that's crazy. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, today, actually, ironically, there's there's a, a, yesterday there was a story about the uh, groups within the police uh, 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 in Ireland uh, who are warning Gardaí, that's the, the Irish police force, fear extremists may use their influence to radicalize young men. Ireland's Muslim prayer houses are prey. This is Sunday Times. Ireland's Muslim prayer houses are prey for radicals. Boy 15 identified as extremist in Garda online monitoring. Now, while this was happening, while these guys were issuing this statement, their colleague over in Dunleary was poring over an article written from by me eight months ago describing the processes by which the Irish government is abusing its authority and abusing history and abusing the, the, the legacy of the Irish people, the suffering of the Irish people through history uh, in order to push through a programme that is destroying Ireland. Meanwhile, these detectives were warning of exactly the same things that I'm warning of and uh, which have been warned about for, for over 20 years, for 20 odd years, by the way. And it's a very interesting study now, Richie, that I've been doing uh, because, you know, you know, it's a funny thing, Richie, when, when time passes, you tend to a kind of amnesia drifts in culturally and, and individually as to like what actually happened along the way. Uh, so, you know, you kind of might have a notion uh, in Ireland now that this whole situation, as it were, crept up on us. But it actually didn't creep up on us at all. We were very well aware of it uh, about 20 years ago and maybe 15 to 20 years ago. And not just Irish people in general, not just people like me, but people in general, the police force, the Garda, they were aware of it. Uh, politicians were aware of it. They were warning about it. A Minister for Justice warned about it in, in, in Ireland some time ago. Like, there they were dozens. I came across, I had a correspondence about 15 years ago with a man who was very interested because he'd heard me on the radio and he was very interested in what I was saying about the way that the, t the daubing of racist on your on your identity and on basically on your face, your public face, was, was being used as a weapon to silence people and stop them calling out the criminality that was actually happening in front of our, our noses. And he had collected an awful lot of information and articles uh, over a period of about seven or eight years, going back to, this, to the turn of the millennium, about the subject. And he had extracted the headlines and this, a summary of each article and then a link at the end. And he sent this on to me. And it was a very interesting document. And interesting, uh, reading it yesterday was most interesting to me. There was all kinds of material. And this is from, from newspapers now that, that, that no longer touch this subject. 
you know, the Irish Independent, the Sunday Tribune at the time was very good on this, for example, that's gone now. But but there were other newspapers as well. And the general trust of it was that Ireland was the greatest scam nation in the world for these people. Europol were reported as having said that Ireland was a, a soft touch, had become the most, you know, the, the go-to location, uh, uh, the top spot for people smugglers and criminal gangs. And that, that Europol is the law enforcement agency for the United for the European Union. And it was, uh, you know, uh, immigrants, he said, are looking for Ireland as a haven and perfect location for outrunning immigration officials. The report concluded that crime gangs working within the country and overseas were now running major people smuggling operations into Ireland. Uh, there were all kinds of things about children uh, who were travelling alone as uh, part of asylum uh, processes or, or whatever, were then went missing in Ireland. And then nothing happened, like hundreds of them, literally hundreds of them. Uh, there was about, you know, the whole kind of scamming, the, the, the way that, that the, the, the stories they told. The Minister for Justice, uh, uh, Michael McDowell, in 2005, went into a, spoke in a committee in the, in the Dáil, in Leinster House, in the Parliament. And he, he outlined some of the scams that they were pulling. And like, just said, this is ridiculous. You can't do this, you know. You can't, this, we will not survive this, essentially, was his point, you know. Uh, and McDowell, really McDowell said this in 2005, did he? He did indeed. Yeah. I'll read you out what the Irish Independent report at the time said. It said, uh, speaking at the Dáil Committee on Justice, Defence, Equality and Women's Rights, Mr McDowell also said there was too much political correctness. He said the patience of Irish people would be very much tested if they knew the stories being told by people looking for asylum. He said he would like to interview asylum seekers at the airport. I would like to interview these people at the airport, but the UN insists that I go through due procedure. As soon as we go through due process and the guardie arrive, they lift the phone and call a lawyer who gets them a judicial review to get them taken off the plane. The minister said he criticised the large amount of manifestly bogus political correctness in Ireland. Quote, there's a lot of political correctness that goes on here and it is manifestly bogus, far-fetched nonsense and it's about time we said it, he noted. Uh, now, you see, that man now, he's now rambling on about the far right. Amazing. He's a senator and he goes on about the far right. He you, doesn't talk about this anymore. Is that he's right? Warned off. He's 18, been warned off. 18 years later, he's now a senator. He's in the Shannon and he's, he's, um, he's, his, his opinion has changed. Can I just, can I just share this with you? This is from, and this is um, kind of, f for me, because I, I was, I just left WLRFM in Waterford at the time. This is Carol Duffy on the 9th of August 2003 in the Irish Times. Plea for no more asylum seekers in Tremor. The mayor of Tremor County Waterford has claimed the seaside town is enough asylum seekers and that it is time to call a halt to further arrivals. There is an increase of 364% in the number of asylum seekers living in Waterford City and County during the 22 months to October 31st, 2022. Wait for this. So Blaise Hannigan, Fianna Fáil at the time, Mayor Tremor, we're talking exactly 20 years ago, right? He said, um, I believe we have enough asylum seekers in the town with hundreds here at the moment. We're a seaside town and a lot of people have put investment in the town, such as hoteliers, B&B owners and business people. Now that sounds reasonable to me, except... Out came Independence and Sinn Féin and the usual suspects. I am totally outraged and disgusted at the Mayor's use of stereotypical language to deal with the issue of asylum seekers. So even then you had all that bollocks. Yes, you did. 
It did. And this is very interesting because there was a tweet over the weekend by a, a, a guy called Dr. Owen Lenahan, who's a, a journalist. He writes for a kind of slightly exotic international magazines like Quillette. And that's, a, you know, it's a fairly high, high level stuff. But he wrote a very interesting tweet, very good tweet up to a point. And his central point was that it wasn't the, the far left that had brought this destruction down upon Ireland. That isn't exactly his words, but that's, he's essentially saying what I'm saying. Uh, but he said it was the mainstream parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, who had presided over this. And, and just in a certain sense, Richie, that's actually true. But he's missing something very important, which is that the nature of the Irish political system, the PR system, proportional representation, has, has in recent decades ensured that it has always been necessary that there has never been an overall majority by a single party, not since 1989. And that means that you know, Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael have always had to go into coalition with one or two other parties. Generally, they would be, not, not, no, that's not quite true, but, but often they would be left parties. And so, left-wing parties. And I have looked at this now, and, and, and I can actually see now in the runes of, literally the runes, both spellings of Ireland, uh, Irish history here, um, that what happened, there was such a government, uh, Fine Gael and Labour and Democratic Left, two far left uh, parties with mainstream party. And what actually happens in that situation always, regardless of the ideology, is that the, the, the tail wags the dog. Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have no ideology. They couldn't care less. They just want power. They want position. They want state cars. And they will make up their numbers with anybody who will come in with them. And they will give them anything in ideological terms that they they ask for, which means that, that essentially this started off in the period 92 to 94 under a, a very supposedly conservative Irish government under John Bruton and Fine Gael, but with Labour and Democratic left really calling the shots in this area. And that went on for several years. And what happened then was they bedded down this system of NGOs running all of this huge sector of migration system and, and asylum system which then took on a life of its own. And you see, then, you see, by the time, you see, from about 97 onwards to 2009, Michael McDowell's party, the Progressive Democrats, were in government with Fianna Fáil. That was the part. And there was an entirely different mentality at the political level, in the sense that uh, McDowell was actually calling it out. And I mean, this is rather ironic from my point of view, because there was one issue that I, you know, I, you know, I disagreed with him about. And, and it's very interesting because it was he had a refer he, he conducted a referendum in 2004 to stop what he saw as a scam that was operating where women were coming into Ireland pregnant and having a baby. And because of the way the constitutional position was, that meant that they were entitled to become Irish citizens as well. And their whole family was here next. That was the idea. Oh, and he yeah. put it, he wanted to put a stop to this. And, and the proposal he made was that you would no longer automatically qualify for Irish citizenship by virtue of being born in Ireland, that there had to be other considerations as well. Your parents had to be Irish or one at least of your parents had to be Irish and so on. Now, I disagreed with this on purely philosophical terms, not on the substantive issue. I, I could see the problem and I thought it should be fixed, but I, should, I, I felt that there should be a different way of fixing it rather than messing around with the constitution. And what I have to say now that given what's happened since, that Michael McDowell was absolutely right to be worried at that time. I didn't see the danger that he saw. I didn't think it would explode in this way. 
And and in fairness to him, he up to 2009, he kind of held the line in, to some extent at the political level. But the truth of it is that the system was already place, uh, in place and working away. And people, you know, their streets were being crowded with foreign people that, that had no basis. You'd look around and say, well, OK, so we've, we're part of the EU and now the, the borders of the EU are open. But these, these people didn't come from the EU. They came. What happened in the vast majority of cases, Richie, they were coming from Britain and Northern Ireland into Ireland because there was no problem. You just got off the, the, the plane and walked through. And, you know, you could be stopped sometimes and interrogated, but by and large, they got through. And, and when people applied for asylum, like they, they, they half them at that point, according to, I think it was McDougall as well, or another Minister for Justice said, about half them were disappearing once they'd made their application. They just went into the into the country and were countryside and were lost, never seen again. At one point, there was a, a one story in, the, in one of the papers, about 2003, 2004, was that out of 5,000 Nigerian applications for, for asylum, do you know how many were upheld? Give a guess. I, right, because I having a little idea because speaking to you and others let's say four and a half thousand no two you're kidding two me. two two applications were found to be genuine two oh, oh excuse me found to be genuine right no not not, not accepted right yeah two were found to be genuine in other words every one of them virtually That's was amazing. a scam it was a lie Ireland was seen to be a soft touch this is the basis of the transformation of Ireland from you know, a small country with its own people and its own culture yeah. into this bogus multicultural absolute jungle that we've now brought upon our heads. Jeez, I misunderstood that question, but now that I understand it, that's incredible. No. Two out of 5,000 were found to be genuine. Yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't... No, 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 you did. It. You know, it's me. It's yeah. Monday. It's Monday. That's just... I mean, it's hard to... Yeah. It's hard to... It is hard. It is hard. But you see, this is the interesting thing, Richie, that I, when I look back now, because, you know, I've had this idea in my head recently that, oh, well, we never spotted this coming and we never saw it and we didn't talk about it. But still, I had vague recollections of being on programmes. I mean, I wasn't really radical on the issue. I was just simply asking questions. And one of the questions I used to ask Richie all the time was, how many are we supposed to take? Uh in order to avoid being called racist. And I think yeah. I said this to you before. I said, I'd, I'd throw out an example, say, well, okay, you know, how, are we supposed to take a million? And of course they would say, oh, don't be ridiculous. Okay, so it's not a million. Okay, so we take a dozen, is that? Oh, no, no, come on, you're taking the, you're taking the piss. Okay, so it's somewhere between a dozen and, and a million. Okay, well, let's try and fix it a little bit closer, can we? And supposing we were to arrive, I say, we'll, we'll work on that later, but just supposing we were to arrive at a particular figure, let's say, uh, 327,501. Now, and we get those numbers of people in. And the next Monday morning, the 327,502nd person steps off the plane. Is it okay for us then to say, Ireland is full, we've done our bit, you're going to have to go back? Or is that racist as well? And you know the answer to that question, Richard. Of course, yeah. It's always going to be racist because this is a bullying technique. These guys, you see, it is leftists who have been doing this. Uh, Dr. Lenahan is wrong with all due respect to him and it is a good point he makes. He makes a good summation of the situation, but he misses the coalition factor. But that coalition factor, hang on, because that's really interesting and I buy into that up to a point. But I, I've also done my own homework this afternoon and we've been part by we, I mean Ireland, of course, we've been part of European Union and United Nations Human Rights 
committee settlement programs, haven't we? Resettlement we programs. Have, yeah, so, we so, so we got to factor that in as well. So, what... oh, indeed, indeed. And I mean, look. To be honest, okay. I mean, I, I should qualify that further. You're quite right. I mean, I, look. The minute we signed up to the EU on the first, or we joined up on the first of January, 1973. I remember my father, you know, going round. Uh, today, that day, in the car, in the van, the Milga van, and it was like to drive. He was driving a hearse. His his mood was such because this is the worst day in Irish history. And actually, they heard a story recently that at a party around that time, Eamon de Valera had uh, family do had stood up and said that he was standing up now. He says as the last president of a free Ireland. And that is so true. That is that would if he's I I I've had it verified to me by somebody who 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 knows the situation, who is close to it, and and so you see they did know, but you see the thing is, Richie, these guys had no capacity. They shouldn't ever have been running a country. They had no capacity to run a country, to run anything really. They were just gobdaws who worked their way up through the, the local political system, and. Ended up in, in in cabinets and so on, in ministerial portfolios, and and they didn't know what to do. So then they were offered an easy way out. You know, I keep saying it like it's like we got we inherited the the building, the 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 shop and the flat on the main street, and and we were looking at it for several weeks, looking out the window, the cafe across the road. What we could we sell that shop, you know? And then the bright the brilliant idea occurred to us. Well, why don't we rent out the shop and live upstairs? And that was the policy. Essentially, that's the, that's the policy. Foreign direct investment. We bring in all the corporations. We bring all the outsiders in, and you know they'll they'll give us the, a few few dribbles off the pay that their table will will see us right. You know, but of course, what happened was, Rishi, that when they brought in the corporates come in came in, but they promised to give employment to Irish people, but then they didn't. Like uh, I've said to you before, I think the number of uh, the percentage of Irish people working in Google last time I checked was five percent. The Google's European headquarters in Dublin, five percent yeah. are Irish. PayPal is there as well. Yeah, it's a complete scam. And and the result was that suddenly the the the, the streets of Dublin were transformed into something like uh, you know Istanbul or something. You know, and 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 this isn't racist. You see, this is just simply describing no, what's happened to it our. It is country. a fact, and it has yeah. an impact see, on everybody. Why, yeah. why can we not use the English language to describe what we see with our eyes? And describe the feeling it brings up on us when we see our country being swamped without any consultation with the Irish people. You know, I I, I find it dis- I, I, this article. I hope it goes to court, and I would love the opportunity to stand up in court and read out the article I've written. And it's a very interesting thing, the racist thing. At the very end of my article, it just so happens that uh, I I quote from a very distinguished man who is actually a black African cardinal. Robert Cardinal Sarah, who is exactly on the same page as I am on all of these questions, because he says that that mass migration is a curse that is destroying the world. It destroys not just the country into which the people, these people come, but the countries that they leave are destroyed also because the energies of those people are left. You see, are are sucked out, you know. And this is the thing that you hear this prated on by by Irish politicians all the time. Oh, you know, we we all went all over the world, you know, and we were welcome wherever we went. We did, so long as we worked hard. We worked, we went to countries like America and Canada 
which were new countries developing, growing, pushing into vast territories, developing, growing. That's not the kind of country Ireland is. Like I heard the the, 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 the Deputy Prime Minister Michal Martin saying recently on a, I saw a clip where he was saying that that 40,000 people went to a, to, to a Canadian city. It was oh, actually I love Toronto, that. Toronto. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, it, that uh, they were welcomed, you know. That the, the city had only twenty thousand people when they arrived. Now, then, now suddenly there were sixty thousand. Well, let me tell you something else about this about Canada. Canada is one hundred and fifty times the size of Ireland, geographically. The territory of Canada is that much bigger than Ireland. So, uh, that equivalent number of that forty thousand going to 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 a, to, to a Canadian city. Coming to Ireland will be about 300 people. The pro rata yeah, per yeah. calculation would 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 be a plane, two plane loads of people, let's say. And it's like you said uh, as well, it's, it, it's, it, it, there's a huge, there's a word of difference between how Ireland is housing migrants coming into the country now at the expense of people locally and yes. the welcome the Irish people would have gotten in Canada all those years ago. They certainly weren't put up in um, hotel like accommodation. No. They certainly weren't given anything at the expense of the indigenous people. They weren't. Not at all. Of course this is, not. This is the most. This is the most disgraceful thing. The treatment, the appalling treatment of people, homeless people in Ireland, who've been basically put to the back of the the queue, as every Tom, Dick, and Harry comes from every Tom, Dick, and Harry country, in the world, and demands hotel space first of all, then the key of the front door key of a of a of an apartment or a house. And people who have been on the waiting list from Ireland with their families are left there year after year after year and basically have, you know, are insulted by the people they elected, stupid they elected, to represent their interests. Do you know when I left politics behind? I think I said this to you when we spoke first time, but it's worth mentioning again very, very quickly. So I'd been at WLRFM for a few years producing the talk show. And I'd heard people complaining about Tremor and, and, and that and what was happening there. And then I set out to disprove what I thought were urban legends. I set out to disprove claims that people from um, uh, West Africa were going to the Southeastern Health, Health Board where people would go if they were really, really in a bad way. And that whatever they asked for, they would be given it. No questions asked. And I just thought this was a right-wing conspiracy theory. Yes, I, I was that guy back then. And what I did was, because obviously, you know what it's like, John, working in radio, people don't know who you are. They don't know what you look like. So what I would go to the headquarters of the South Eastern Health Board and I would watch that right-wing conspiracy theory be proven in front of my eyes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, I could, yeah. and, I, and I'm an old socialist. I'm, I'm a trade unionist. Well, you know, my, my, my instincts would have been the same as yours, Richie. Yeah. You know, uh, like, you know, uh, for, for personal reasons that I won't go into uh, and, 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 and all the rest of it. Like, and because I've also been involved, you know, with various what are called charities. Now, this I know this is a moot issue, like it's with the charity in this context in Africa, for example, is does more harm than good. But let's just say that the intentions are good sometimes and, and, and you know, people try to help. Uh, and and they try to help people in their own country as an alternative to destroying our country by um, inviting them here to hang around street corners, which I don't think is any good for anybody. Uh, and and so, but my instinct would have been like to to do the right thing by these people, and also I think to honour the the connection we have with them. And this is a very interesting point, Richie, that I don't think that I don't know if we've touched on it before, but that Ireland 
because of its history of colonialism, of being colonized by our nearest neighbor. And I know people say that's not true. We, we were a part of the British Empire. Give me a break. I was never, my family were never part of the British Empire. Yours might have been, if you want Nor to mine. be. That's no. fine. So stop that. Colonialism is a, psycho is a psychological process. We underwent all that. We went, uh, underwent mass starvation, genocide at the hands of, of these, these tyrants in, 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 at various times. And so we, we have an experience which is in a lot of ways analogous to some of these peoples who are coming to Ireland now. The problem, though, is, Richie, because they're indoctrinated by very ignorant people working for NGOs, or malicious people, actually, more so than ignorant. Ignorant, of course, but malicious and malignant and, 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 and malevolent. Uh, uh, they are being t educated, they're being coached to see Irish people as their former oppressors. That the colour of the pasty-faced faces, the pasty-faced Irish, are seen, are, are ipso facto, as part of the imperial process that, that uh, 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 occupied and abused their countries. And now they're looking for, quote unquote, reparations. That's and I've right. heard this being said by various people. I've seen clips of guys making speeches about that they want some of the Irish land, you know, they're entitled, they've come for it, you know. Uh, this is a complete bastardization of Irish history. And of course, you know, people in Ireland no longer know their history, but or they're not no longer. They never actually really understood the full import of it because they've got these kind of this, you know, things like the potato famine, you know, as if the potato suddenly turned rogue on the Irish people. You know, uh, it wasn't the potato's fault, you know, uh, and and these people now are coming and they're treating as if, as if we're part of the British Empire. You know, and, and I hear people saying this all the time that we well, we were part of the British. No, we weren't. No, we weren't. We were slave nation. We were the, the, the vegetable garden of Britain. That's right. So stop the nonsense, you know, and, and uh, uh, this is something that is really toxic and insidious because it's actually a lot of people, Irish people actually believe it. They have this guilt complex, which a lot of Europeans have, and which is destroying, which is throttling Europe, because people are afraid to speak up and say, well, no, no, that's not true. That's not our history. Because they're being bullied by these half-educated ed morons who just happen to have loud voices and, 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 and thuggish faces, and they're getting away with it. And they have been getting away with it, as I say now, for 25 years, maybe more, 30 years, actually. I think this goes back 30 years, as I was saying, to the early 90s, actually. And I talk to people who tell me about, you know, because I used this puzzle about this, Richie. You know, I, after 2004, I, I started paying attention. I would see, you know, I, I, I never took any notices of black faces around because there are all kinds of reasons why people might be in Ireland. And, you know, organic migration is perfectly acceptable. You know, in my view, you know, you come and it's like the, I mentioned to you before about Thomas Aquinas, like he talked about the Catholic teaching. Yes, people come on, on short term visits, tourists come. People on contracts, students come. Yes, of course, of course. And then, you know, there's another process if people want to come and join your nation, which is not so easy, you know, and, and shouldn't be. Uh, but then I noticed there was a lot of them around. But then I started to say, I used to say to myself, well, it must be that they're coming via this kind of open borders in Europe thing. Yeah, that's that they're a part. They've already been living in Europe and they're entitled to come. And we voted for that or they, as I didn't vote for it, but other people, Irish people, a majority of Irish people or a majority of the turnout voted for this and we have to accept it. Well, OK, you know, but so but now it transpires that wasn't the case at all. That no. was not the way they were coming. They were coming via Britain all the time in hordes. 
and, and, and under, with all kinds of sob stories. Having already been in a European country, the first country, of, 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 you know, which is the law, uh, you know, under the Dublin Protocol, that you, you, know, you must seek asylum in the place that you, end up, you come to first in Europe. And of course, they were already in Britain, but they decided to move on or they were encouraged to move on by the authorities there who knew that Ireland was a soft touch. And and so now we got, we have in Ireland now, you know, we can't really trust a single word of what our politicians tell us. But we, we but certainly, even on the statistics they're given, one in five people now in Ireland at least is non-national. Is not, that's as many as there are in Britain after 70 years of this. In a post-imperial nation, which owed a debt of some kind to its former colonies. We had no former colonies. We owed debt to nobody. And we have the same pro rata number of uh, people in Ireland as they have after 70 years. We've, we have it after 25 one in, years. One in five is, is hard to, to imagine and where it might go if there isn't a change. Michael Cohen is a trade unionist and a very good friend of mine. He's listening to this with great interest. He says, Richie, back in the early 2000s, Irish ferries sacked its staff and imported new staff from Eastern European EU countries, all legal within the single market. And I remember that too. I remember talking to him about that. That's right, sacked all of its staff, largely Irish and British staff, and then brought in a whole gang of new staff from Eastern European EU countries and could get away with doing that. I'm just mindful of the time now, because we've got about seven minutes left, and I did want to ask you about something else in that time. You're listening to John Waters, by the way, Irish writer, broadcaster, journalist. You can read him on johnwaters.substack.com. Do go and look at the Irish Light paper, which is online. If you're in the UK, you'll get the Light paper. Presumably it's arriving uh, in your community now. Great work to people distributing those papers in the UK and in Ireland. It's it's wonderful work, really good. The only free press, really, uh, that's left in in Britain and in Ireland. John's been on the programme talking about, obviously, being invited to a police station to discuss an article. An eminent journalist... I'm not kissing his arse. Been reading him for years and years, writing writing an article critiquing the Irish government's uh, policies around migration. Not just the present Irish government, but previous Irish governments. And that a policeman could invite him to discuss that in the police station is abject tyranny. Read more about it at johnwaters.substack.com. But I could not ask you. And if I if I if I cut you down in your prime there, I'm sorry. I don't mean to do that. But I want to ask you about this. Our uh, Parliament back home, the Doyle, had a debate on the horrific excess death figures in our country. Uh, Andrew Bridgen managed to get a debate on the same subject in the House of Commons on Friday evening last. And between the Doyle in Ireland and the House of Commons, there couldn't have been more than 30 MPs to talk about one of the most serious subjects that you could possibly talk about. The fact that people are dying. Uh, in greater numbers yes. than ever before, and nobody seems to know why. Did you see the yes. state of the turnouts in both of those debates? I did. I did indeed, Richie. And that this is—it's absolutely, in a certain sense, Richie is shocking. You can say that first of all, off the top of the bat. Of course, it is in the context of our all our lives of, in understanding reality and understanding how politics works and the law of consequences that normally obtains or obtained in political and public life. You know, if something bad happens, people. There are investigations and then people walk the plank or whatever. That's the way it works, right? That's not happening now. And that this is, to me, the most interesting thing about all of this, that people need to start thinking about this aspect. Because we can go on and on and on talking about what happened. And, and you know, almost like in an almost like, you know, 
pornographic way, going through it, like going through it, going through it, say, oh, this is shocking. How did this contradiction? It's hypocritical. It's wrong. It's dishonest. You see, they have constructed a system based on amnesia, which allows them to do this with impunity. In other words, you see, you got to remember, these guys are criminals. The public representatives of Irish people and English people and British people are now fully fledged criminals. They're involved. They have been complicit in mass murder because they pushed a vaccine, a supposed vaccine, which has turned out to be poison and which is, has killed untold numbers of people. In, in Ireland, I think we're certainly we're well into the double digits of thousands of people who have died as a result of this shot. It's, it's clear. Now, you see, so they have this kind of avoidance of now, you see, they know that this is true. And if you want to know why they know it, because they keep trying to come up with explanations for why people are dying while ignoring the one that everybody's screaming at them. You know what I mean? Like, what does that tell you? Yeah. That, that they, they, they know. They know. Because if they did, if they were honest, if this is an honest response, they'd be saying, well, there are a number of things it could be. It could be climate change. It could be that. And it could, of course, be the vaccine. We have to acknowledge that possibility. And, you know, notwithstanding that we, we trusted the vaccine and we, we did, we admit, you know, push it on our people and, you know, threaten them in many respects. And that was wrong. You know, we accept that now. But we will actually, with you know, apply our full rigours to investigating this. That would be the response if they were honest. But the point is they're not. They're criminals covering up a crime. And therefore, they're not going to turn out Andrew Bridgen or in the doll with the equivalent. That's a, you know, uh, there are a couple of good people have stepped forward now. A guy, my, a guy called John McGuinness, a yeah. long-time Fianna Fáil representative, very solid piece of, you know, could have been a party leader, could have been the party leader at one point, a very, very bright, very brilliant man. And, and, and delighted, you know, people on our side say, oh, well, it took him in some of you. I don't care how long it took him, he's there, right? Now, uh, but this is the point, that, that the whole ecology of public understanding has been contaminated and tampered with. Because, you see, I'll give you another example, which is somewhat related to what we've just been talking about. There was a, a tri- another trial in Ireland last week of a man, and still going on, I won't go into too much detail, but it's, 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 it's well over the place, where uh, this woman, Ashley Murphy, the evidence is now saying that this woman who was killed by, a, or alleged to have been killed by a person who is now on trial, who is a non-Irish person, uh, she was stabbed 11 times, the evidence in court said 11 times in the neck. But the Irish Times, what they published at the time and since, was that she was strangled. Now, we could speculate as to what the meaning and significance of this is. What is the weight of this difference, this distinction? And I won't go into that now. But but at a purely factual level, the Irish Times goes on all the time about disinformation and misinformation when when it's talking about people who talk about vaccinations, etc. But can we now get the Irish Times to admit that it actually misled the Irish public about a central detail of a murder, a very sensitive murder? And you may remember, Richie, I talked about this before. In the yeah. case of the Ashton uh, Murphy murder, literally within hours of that, there were tens of thousands of young women on the streets of Ireland in different every city, cities and towns with candles and framed photographs of Ashton Murphy and building altars and attacking Irish men for misogyny, for violence against women. This before anything was known about what had actually happened. 
No apology was ever issued for that. One particular guy who had been very, very much involved in the COVID scam, I suppose a doctor, said that Irish men should actually have to undergo a test before they were allowed to leave their houses. Jesus, I remember that, yeah. Do you remember that? I do. Now, here we are. And the Irish Times is keeping, keeping shum, you see. If that was anybody else, if that was me or any, had made an error of that or had done something like that, they would hound us to the grave. These people are criminals. They're all, the Irish Times is a criminal newspaper. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. It pushed these, these jabs. It pushed these injections. It, it joined in the bullying of people who were forced, you know, on pain of losing their jobs. Yeah to take these jabs. Their feature and writers are, endorsed uh, people being fired for not taking the jabs. That's right. Yeah. And many of these people have died. We've been tracking this now for, for nearly three years, since January 21. And, and it's been well documented and systematically documented by people very well qualified. There's a wonderful man called Patrick E. Walsh, an accountant from Kilkenny, who's been like absolutely, you know, Bang extraordinary. On, yeah. yeah. Uh, in the way that he's pushed this and, 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 and attacked it time and time. I mean, Ashton Lachlan has done amazing work about this. There's a lot of people who have done amazing work about it. And, and uh, I, I, but these people are just sneered at by these scum, these journal liars who, who, who refuse to acknowledge their own errors, but insist that everybody else be cancelled for trying to tell the truth. We're just about out of time, right? We've got about 60 seconds left. I'll give you the last um, 30 seconds. We'll pick this up again, no doubt, next time we're, we're speaking. You're listening to John Waters, johnwaters.substack.com. Get on to, uh, get online and look for the Irish Light Paper. And if you put Gemma O'Doherty in that search bar, you'll find it, John Waters. You'll find it quickly. Um, really interesting stuff again today. It's depressing stuff, you know that. Isn't it? Yeah, it's it's very depressing because what it means, Richie. Let me finish with this point. Yeah. What it what it means is this: that that essentially they're moving on every freedom to open your mouth about anything that involves them, and they want to stop. They are criminals, and they want to stop you calling them out as such. That's it. And they're criminals in relation to the to the the shots, and they're criminals in relation to flooding Ireland with with indifferent aliens. But, they, you know, and they know that if enough people start to hear discussion about this, that they will become mobilized and, 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 and you know, emboldened to actually demand answers. And they want, therefore, to put people like drag me, people like me and Jim O'Doherty before the court so they can shut us up. Well, they won't. But the thing is, they won't. I'll tell you why. Um, this is really going to sound, this is going to sound uh, really narcissistic, but it's not. Shows like this are doing incredibly well. I don't know if you ever check out the Apple podcast charts. You'll see shows like this one, the Richie Allen Show, and one or two others, constantly in the top 200 daily charts, beating programmes from LBC Radio and Talk TV. Now, I don't say that to brag. I, I really do not. I say it because I want to give people some hope. Like, we're yes. not speaking into an empty... Well, you and I are speaking to a lot of people. And I even had an email tonight from a listener. This is my very first time listening, ever. I was recommended it. And I'm enjoying your guest. Uh, in the first there, we were talking about some draconian law. So we're making a breakthrough. I mean, maybe eventually Apple will start falsifying the charts and stuff. But, but we are being heard by people. And that's wondrous, I think. Something yes, to be it is. excited about. It is. It's fantastic. I, I do think so. That's that's the one hope we have. That you know, I, I the term I came up recently about the media was, uh, it's, I call it the set aside media, 
And that goes back to, to the 1990s too, which a period which people would, they, they, they don't believe me now when I tell them this actually happened, that the, the EU bought in a system whereby farmers would be given grants if they agreed to poison their fields so that they turned yellow. Yeah. And therefore the satellite could read that they weren't actually working their land and they would be then compensated for that uh, with money. So that they basically set aside the good God's good earth in order to get income that they wouldn't be given otherwise. And that's essentially what's happened to the media. They've given up on telling the truth. They've poisoned the truth in order and told lies in order to continue getting their checks at the end of the month. But there's a day of reckoning coming from John. That's about all we have time for today. Thanks for your time, Thanks. mate. You know you're welcome on any time. You don't have to wait to be asked. It's okay, an absolute Richie, pleasure to chat you. with I'll you. Bother, I'll, I'll have you. I'll, have, I'll, 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 I'll torment you from now on for saying that. No, you did, I, but it's sincere. <laughs> I know we sometimes have a tendency to be insincere, the Irish, but I do mean it. When you want to rant or if you've got something to say, give us a shout, pal. The door's okay, always Richie, open to you. I will indeed. I'll keep in mind, for sure, keep an eye out. Thank you so much for that, for everything. You're Thank welcome, you. mate. Thank you. That's our friend John Waters, Irish journalist, writer. Um, broadcaster, top man. Check him out at johnwaters.substack.com and you'll find him at the Irish Light. Thanks again to Louise Crefield, saveourrights.uk in the first hour. That's it for the programme. That was Monday's show. We'll speak again tomorrow at five o'clock Tuesday. Until then, it's bye from me, your BBG. Bye now.